please remain standing. Buenos dias. Good morning. My name is Pastor Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here at FBC. And our scripture reading this morning is Luke 10, 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turns to the disciples and he says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Greg. I'm one of the pastors here too. As long as Jeff will have me. Thanks, Ron. We'll see how this. We'll see how this morning goes, Ron. And then we'll see at the end. I just want to remind you this coming Saturday, July second, eleven a.m. We're going to have a memorial service for Bob Tucker. Roberta's here with us this morning, and her and her whole family would enjoy your presence if you're able to come and uh, celebrate what God did in and through the life of Bob, as well as spend some time recognizing. Uh, that this life is not the end for those of us who are in Christ. So uh, July 2nd, 11 o'clock, right here in the Worship Center, uh, Memorial Service for Bob Tucker. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we take a little bit of time this morning to look at Luke chapter 10. God, we thank you this morning for your grace and kindness that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, uh, first and foremost, God, for the work you have done in Jesus to come and die for us, and uh, raise from the dead that those who would believe could have eternal life. And so, God, we are thankful for the salvation you have brought to us. We would pray, God, as we take a little bit of time this morning in your word, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of Jesus, to have faith where we lack, to be encouraged where we're down, to be lifted up, to be brought to repentance in those areas of our life where we need to repent. And God, for those of us who don't know you, that you might bring us to faith in Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. Jeff read just the tail end of that, so through our time together in Luke 10, we'll be reading the, the balance that's left, Luke 10, 1 through 24. The title of the message this morning is, A Job Well Done. And Jesus is going to be sending out, in this passage we're looking at, disciples to do the work of the ministry of preparing cities for the message that he's going to bring to them. And what we want to think about as we look at this mission these disciples were on is what does it mean uh, to do a job and, and do it well? What is the job well done? And uh, I looked up this week online a couple of job titles. I don't know if you've known know this or not, but it's become rather fashionable among companies to have job titles that are bizarre. So here are some job titles I found on the webs. One job you could get is happiness hero. Okay. A word wizard. A digital overlord. Okay. To each his own. Finally, this one, uh, hardest to pronounce, dream alchemist. Dream alchemist, a happiness hero. This is a, a firm that provides call center support to companies around the world, and the happiness hero is the title they provide to their customer service reps. We used to call them folks who work on the phone, and now they are happiness heroes. The word wizard was a, an advertising agency that was oh, had a position open for what we used to call a copywriter, somebody who knew how to write, write good with grammar and whatnot. <laughs> copywriter is now a word wizard, a digital overlord. This, person, this job was open 
at a, techno, a technology services company that provides services to companies all over the world. And this is a person who is a website manager. They go online and make sure your website is working properly. So if you have problems with your website, you need to phone up your digital overlord, apparently. Finally, the dream alchemist, this job was open at a financial services company. An account manager, you know, the guy you call who wants to tell you how to spend your retirement and how to invest it. A dream alchemist. You mean an account manager? Why don't you just tell me how I'm supposed to invest my money? What is the job becomes the question. In order to know whether or not a job is done well, the first thing you need to know is what in the world is the job that we're supposed to be doing? And when we look at this passage, we're going to see a lot of things that Jesus values, a lot of things his disciples value, a lot of things that might ring true in us in terms of what we value. But we're going to discover very quickly what the job is. And in order to know if a job is done well, we have to know what the job is. Look with me at Luke chapter 10, verse 9. We'll start here, and then we'll read the beginning here in a minute. He tells them, heal the sick in it, that is the towns they visit, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So there's a lot of important things that are important to Jesus, but in this moment of time, he's telling his disciples what the job is, and the job is this. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's the job. How do we know if the job is done well? If we did the job he called us to do is to tell them the kingdom of God has come near. That's where we're headed. Go back to verse 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me read them for you. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We'll stop there. A job well done. What is the job? Tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. How are they supposed to do that? Go out and seek harvesters and laborers to join you in this mission. Where are they going to find the laborers? They are going to go out into the mission, out into the harvest, out into the field, and they are going to proclaim the kingdom of God is near. Some people are going to say, I want to be a part of the kingdom of God, and they're going to say, hey, that's awesome. You can be by trusting Jesus, and therefore, that means the laborers are going to come from the harvest. He's saying you're going to have to go out into the, the field, tell people about the kingdom of God, and those who come to faith in Christ are going to join you in that labor, and you're going to go out and do that. Where are they going? Look how he describes the place where the harvest is. Look in verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Who's excited about this now? We're not. Jesus is making it very clear. Here's the mission. Go and tell them. Kingdom of God is near. And when Jesus is, is saying the kingdom of God is near, he's using that word two ways. Number one, he's saying it's near in terms of location, meaning Jesus is on planet Earth. Secondly, he's also saying the kingdom of God is available to you. It is not a, in a far-flung place. It's by faith, you can be a part of the kingdom of God. It's near. It's close in. You are able to participate in it by faith. And what he is saying to those going out to do the work of the kingdom, the job of proclaiming the kingdom of God is near, they are doing it in enemy territory. You are going out amongst those who aren't for the kingdom, but they are against the kingdom. Opposition and danger awaits. Go ahead. Really, really important to understand. Because if we're going to think about how we evaluate if a job is well done, we need to recognize where we are. We need to recognize we're not in heaven yet. Now, I realize living in Southern Oregon is probably as close as you can get sometimes. But we're not home yet. 
How do we know we're not in heaven? Now, it just occurs to me, now we're going to have problems, aren't we? We're off script. Driving, people driving in the left lane on a freeway. Listen, if you're not going 55, I've told you this before. If you get nothing out of this message, if you are not going 70, the right-hand lane is for you and for you alone. Get out of my way. That's how we know we're not in heaven and the way people drive. Jesus is saying, go out and seek laborers, and you are going out in enemy territory. Because you're, 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 we're thinking, oh, I'm going out to do Jesus' work in Jesus' ways, in Jesus' power. Likely, as I go out to do Jesus' work in Jesus' ways, in Jesus' power, people are going to put palm fronds down on the ground for me. And they are going to bake me pie. And they are going to celebrate my arrival. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You are a lamb among wolves. And you need to anticipate that your work will be characterized by opposition. That's what it will be characterized by, but nonetheless, go. So number one, we don't evaluate if we're doing the job of the kingdom by whether or not people accept it. In fact, I might suggest, we won't go here much, for much time, I might suggest one of the ways to know you may not be doing the work of the kingdom of God is if it's always accepted. Because he's saying we're going out among Wolves. Okay, let's look at verses 4 through 9. This is a longer section. Let me read it, and then we'll look at it. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So a job well done, know what the job is, to proclaim the kingdom of God is near. How do we do that? First, we go into enemy territory. Secondly, we do so as those who must trust God every single day for everything. So what he tells these workers to do is I want you to go out into this mission not knowing where you will stay tomorrow or what you will eat tomorrow. What he wants them to do on this particular mission is to create in their lives intentional dependency. On purpose, create a situation where God must show up, and if he doesn't show up, they're going to sleep outside or they're going to miss a meal. And, and God has been doing this all throughout the Scripture. If you read your Old Testament, God is routinely telling the people of Israel to do things that force them on purpose to trust Him. Uh, the wilderness. Do you remember in the wilderness, what did they eat? Wonder bread, or we call it manna. They could gather that manna all the days except for the Sabbath day. And on the day before the Sabbath day, they could collect twice as much. But on the Sabbath day, they were supposed to do what? Nothing. Rest. And trust that they would have enough to make it through the day where they weren't gathering. Then when they got into the promised land, they were supposed to take a day of rest, even during harvest. When they did harvest, were they supposed to harvest all the way to the edges? No, no, no. They were supposed to leave some. What do we call that? intentional inefficiencies on purpose doing things to create waste why would God do that is he a waster no number one he wants the poor to be able to gather it number two he wants the people of Israel to do things on purpose that force them to trust him how wide did you have to leave on the edge of your field when you couldn't harvest the edge how wide did it have to be anybody know it doesn't say it doesn't say, does it? It just says, don't edge. How, how far would I harvest? One stock would be left on the edge of that field. One stock. But then another guy, you know, you know what? I want to leave a lot for the poor because I trust. I trust that God will provide for me and for the poor, so I'm going to leave a two-foot section on the edge of my field that I'm not going to harvest. See, the Lord leaves it up to the individual, but what, the, uh, what he was trying to drive his people to do was to make decisions in how they lived where God had to show up intentionally putting themselves in a place of 
depending on God. How did Israel do in that regard? Terrible. They never did. They really hardly ever followed the Sabbath law. So what Jesus is doing here is saying, now that you're following me and you're on mission, I want you in this situation to go out having to trust me. Why is this critically important? Because the mission that has to happen requires miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. What they're doing is they're proclaiming the gospel to dead people who need to trust that Jesus will bring them to life. Anybody here have the power of raising the dead? No. But Jesus does. And he wants us to proclaim the gospel to dead people so they might come to life. If you don't have the power to save, raise the dead, how are you going to raise the dead? Jesus is going to have to show up in his power to move in the heart of the individual. Since that's the case, he wants his workers to already be in that mindset. The, the mission is a waste of time if Jesus doesn't show up, and I'm going to intentionally hear what Jesus is doing for these workers, put myself in the frame of mind and say, Jesus has to show up, not just in proclaiming the gospel, but also in where I'm going to eat and where I'm going to sleep. Go into enemy territory and be uh, intentionally put myself in situations where I have to trust God. Look what he says uh, here. Whenever you enter a town, eat what is set before you. Anybody ever done that? Well, that's a risky proposition. Sometimes you'll go over to somebody's house and you already have the things in your mind you're going to have to say, oh, I just had some dental work done. I can't eat whatever this is. And some of you are like, now I got something out of this message. Dental work. <laughs> See, you're welcome. Eat what, Whenever you enter town, uh, receive what they give you. Stay in one house. Don't move from house to house. He wants them to evaluate the work that they're undergoing based on their fidelity to the mission, proclaiming the, the presence of the kingdom, not based on what they were eating and drinking. So somebody comes into town and they find themselves staying in the animal shelter, uh, sharing the animal's food. Then they go out the next day and they proclaim the kingdom of God. And then a, a bunch of people respond, oh, wow, this is exciting. A lot of people, oh, kingdom of God, that sounds great. We want a piece of that action. And then uh, a guy a little bit further up that street comes and says, oh, you don't have to stay in this, in the animal shelter. Why don't you come stay in my house? It's, it's much nicer. We have cable. <laughs> and we have servants who will bring you your meals when you want them. And you can tell those servants what you want to eat because, it's, oh, well, that sounds good. So therefore, the ministry of God must be powerful in this town because I have gone from staying in an animal shelter to a little bit bigger house, and then more people responded. Well, somebody else with an even bigger house. They, no, you don't have to stay in a guest room. I have a spare cottage out back you can stay in, and it can be yours to you. And all of a sudden, the person is evaluating their effectiveness on what is coming in, not on what is going out. And Jesus said, don't do that. Your job is to proclaim the kingdom is near, and in some towns, you're going to get run out of town. In other towns, it's going to go well, the job of evaluating them, whether or not it's going well is determined by what you are saying, not what is happening. Because the job is to tell people the kingdom of God has come near. The means of the mission is faith in Jesus. When we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom is coming near, we are by faith calling people to have faith. We are by faith trusting that Jesus might use the words of our mouth through the power of his spirit to do a work of resurrection in the heart of the individual. One writer said it this way. He was teaching some pastoral candidates, and they had their final exam for their sermon. And when they showed up for the final exam for the sermon, there was a bus there, and they weren't staying in the class, and he took them to a cemetery. And he set up a podium, and he said, preach until they get up. And when they do, you pass. And they said, well, that's impossible. And he said, Sunday is no different. There's no different. The problem is we think we have some sort of technique as individuals. If I say this or have this convincing argument from my favorite pastor or teacher or apologist, or if I know this scientific fact or this interesting tidbit about ancient manuscripts or historical evidences, I'll be able to convince this individual that what the Bible says is true 
And the Bible says, no. Raising the dead is in the power of the Spirit alone. Our job is to proclaim the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is here to save sinners who trust him and who want to turn from their evil deeds. So he calls these individuals here to live by faith because the mission is a mission of faith, calling people to faith. And that's why he calls them to live in this regard. He's not saying we have to live hand to mouth throughout our lives. He's saying, though, we ought to be willing to recognize our lives should be patterned. We should think about what does it mean to make sure in my life I am encouraging myself to trust God, not trust other things. Look at verses 10 through 16. What should we expect when we tell people the kingdom of God is near, Jesus comes to save sinners? Let me read verses 10 through 16. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It'll be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. What can we expect to happen when we tell people the kingdom of God is near, Jesus came to save sinners? Hearers will respond. Everyone responds to the gospel. Either they reject it or they believe. But we can anticipate hearers respond. Either they trust Jesus for salvation or reject Jesus and experience condemnation. Look at verse uh, 16 one more time with me. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. So if you proclaim the good news of the gospel to your neighbor and your neighbor says, oh man, you're right, I need forgiveness. And you say, I know, I live next to you. <laughs> you need, I, I, I believe. Did that person believe because he heard you? Because they heard Jesus through you. What part did you play? the obedient servant who proclaims the kingdom of God is near. And so he hears and he hears Christ, who is therefore glorified when somebody hears and believes Jesus alone. The servant is merely the instrument through which Jesus has been heard. By the same token, when you share the good news with your neighbor or your relative or your spouse or your child, and they tell you to take a hike, and maybe they use some additional words to enforce and be emphatic in where you should take your hike. Are they rejecting you? Certainly, they might be. certainly feels that way. But what he's saying, no, 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 you have to understand. The rejection, though, is actually, it's a rejection of Christ. We must not take credit when the gospel is responded to. That is only done because the Holy Spirit works. We must also recognize that we don't have the ability to mess this up. Well, they would have believed if I would have had my arguments in order, if I would have read another Ravi Zacharias book, or if I would have listened to one more sermon, or uh, if I would have gone to bed on time. And, and we don't recognize that the person's response to the gospel is a matter of what the Holy Spirit has seen fit to do. What's our job? The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus came to save sinners like you. So we're expected, the outcomes we should expect, some will hear and respond to the glory of Jesus Christ. Many will hear and respond with rejection. Here's what we often do, is when we share the gospel, or when the church shares the gospel, or when there's something on the radio with the gospel, and people don't respond in a way in which we think they ought to respond, we immediately say, well, what's wrong with me? 
What's wrong with my church? What's wrong with these people I listen to? If they're not responding, the problem must be in the person who is communicating. And that's not what Jesus is saying. If the gospel is shared, the Holy Spirit is going to either work or not work, determining, depending on what he is up to. And the responsibility for the response is in the individual who hears. The one who hears, hears me, Jesus says, and the one who rejects you, rejects me. When we share the gospel, we take way too much credit when people respond favorably and way too much blame when people don't. We fail to understand what our job is. Our job is not to close sales, close deals. What's our job? Proclaim the good news. Kingdom of heaven is here. The response is in the hands of the Lord in the individual who is hearing. A job well done. What is the job? Have I said it enough times? I'm going to keep saying it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I'm going to read a couple of passages. I think they'll be up on the screen. You might be familiar with them. Um, if not, uh, that's exciting. Matthew 28, 18 and following. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe that all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says in Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is totally in charge of all the stuff. There is no one who is in charge of more. Anyone who is in charge of a little bit is only in charge of a little bit because Jesus led him. So you can think of the most powerful person you know. I don't know who that might be. You might know some people who've got a little pull in town or in the state. Think of the most powerful person you know. Jesus has way more. And that person only has the pull they got because Jesus gave it to them. If you had all that much power, if you had the power, maybe you were the king of Medford. I know that's a title a lot of people are really striving for. If you were the king of Medford, and you could make anybody do anything you wanted, what would you make them do? I, I would make them drive in the correct lane on the freeway, obviously. I mean, that's already been established. What would you make them do? Jesus, who has all the power in all the places can make people do anything he wants them to do, says, go and make disciples. Tell them they can have forgiveness through faith in me. All the power in the world can make people do anything he wants, and he tells us, look, all authority is given me, go and make disciples. That's his call. With all that authority, number one, it's a command. So he's kind of saying, by the way, I am in charge this is not if you feel like it. Secondly, instead of him doing it, he calls us to do it. Go and make disciples, teaching them all I have commanded you. Okay, uh, was that a new verse for anyone? It might have been. Acts 1.8, another one might be a new verse, Acts 1.8. I'm going to start in verse 7. The disciples had asked him a question many of you ask frequently, especially with the price of gas the way it is. When is Jesus coming back? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Very politely says, knock it off. Not your business. Verse 8, but what is your business? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The job with the authority of Jesus, in the power of Jesus' spirit, tell people the kingdom is near with words. Give testimony of what God has done. What has God done? Very, very simple. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. Student came to me, this wasn't too long ago, he was talking about faith in school, they were doing some uh, comparative religion, and he was concerned because this, the teacher had summarized that Christianity, along with all other 
uh, religious faiths fundamentally operated in the category of myth, which is stories which provide sense to a human condition that's hard to make sense of. We have shared myths that we utilize to help us make sense of this weird human condition, and Christianity is one of those myths. And this student said, is that the case? I said, well, it would seem like it except for that one little thing. Jesus is raised from the dead. Well, that's a part of the myth. No, no, no. Two or three hundred people seeing the guy is not a myth. That's an eyewitness account, a historical account, documented historically. Guy's not dead anymore. He's raised from the dead. What has God done? He came as a man, died on the cross for sinners, and is raised from the dead. What is he doing today? He's making a person like me more like Jesus. He's making a person like you more like Jesus. This is the job. It's not a complicated job. It's just really, really hard because we're among wolves. But the job is very, very simple. Tell people, kingdom of God is near. Jesus dies for sinners. Now, downside is you have to tell people they're sinners. And you have to tell them what those sins are if you might know them. Good news is only good news if you're saved from something. Might be that you need to tell them what sins you've been saved from. Or he's still helping you with. That's the job. Tell people the kingdom is near with words. Give testimony of what God has done and what God is doing. A job well done, you got to know what the job is. Okay, now let's finish the passage. Um, Luke 10, 17 through 24. A job well done. Know what to celebrate. There was an NFL game contested a while. I don't know when it was in. I just saw it on the YouTubes. You can look it up. Uh, I know what YouTube is. I say the YouTubes to re seem relatable. Um, <laughs> so it was near the end of the game. I think there was about 30 seconds left in the game. The team needed a first down or a touchdown. They had no timeouts. Quarterback throws the ball. The receiver catches it, gets the first down. Great, fantastic catch. One-handed catch into triple coverage. I mean, it's a fantastic catch. Gets the first down. The gentleman who caught the pass was excited about having caught the pass. He celebrated the pass. The problem is his celebration took so much time. They barely had any time to get a playoff. And when they did get one off, it wasn't ready to go, and they lost the game. Now, one of the commentators, ESPN commentators that was watching the game said, listen, it was a fantastic catch. That catch is a catch worth celebrating. The problem is that wasn't the main thing. The main job is to win the game, from what I understand. And the seller, if, when we celebrate the wrong things, we sort of miss the point. So in, if a job is well done, we need to understand what do we celebrate. We need to know what to celebrate. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So there are a lot of work that we can do in the power of God, and it can be significant in our life and the lives of people around us. There is only one thing that's worth celebrating. One thing that, where we recognize the job is well done, and that is this. We have a relationship with Jesus, and we get to go home one day. That's what Jesus, There's a lot of things working in the kingdom of God might bring. But the rejoicing we have is defined by one reality. Your name is written in the book of heaven. These people were celebrating that they had done the work of God in power. And Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. One of the ways that Jesus is trying to communicate to these uh, disciples at this point is this, I've seen this before. You're not bringing new things to me. Defeating the enemy is not a new thing for Jesus. Now, Satan is powerful. He's big time. He's more powerful than us. For Jesus, though, whatever. 
He's nothing. Jesus is king of the universe. Satan is just one of the many created angels. And Jesus has seen this all before. He is the one who has conquered the devil. He is the one who is overcoming the power of the devil. And in fact, Jesus has done these kinds of things before. Look at verse 19. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. He's sort of referring back to Deuteronomy 8.15. I know you were thinking that as I read it. Deuteronomy 8.15. God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock. So here we have Jesus sort of referring back to the wilderness wandering, saying, remember, remember God had this power to do this all before. You, you walked on serpents, and you walked on scorpions, and you didn't get hurt. Do you remember why there were serpents in the camp of Israel? I think they were whining. That uh, probably an overgeneralization. Um, so they sent, God sent serpents into the camp, and they would bite them, and, and they would die. And then the, the solution was this. Have you read this? Is this new? There was a pole that they made with a, a snake on it. If you got bit, you could look at the pole and not die. Is anybody else not satisfied with this? So we still get bit. Is, that, is there any answer where maybe the snakes don't come? Uh, to me, that's what I would be. God, seriously, the pole's great. I don't want to die anyway. I also don't want snakes in my bed. I don't want, to be, I want snakes biting me. So one of the things the snakes, the scorpions reminded them of, and ought to remind us of, is, is this. They're not in the promised land yet. The promised land is not here. And so the disciples were getting really stoked. Look at the power of God we have over demons and, and, and these sorts of things. And Jesus goes, the fact that there are demons means we're not home yet. We're not home yet. What we ought to be celebrating is we have a home that we anticipate because your name is written in the book of life. There will be a day where we won't have to tread on serpents and scorpions and celebrating that they don't harm us misses the point what we celebrate is one day the kingdom is going to come because our name is written in the book of life look at verses 21 and 22 jesus now rejoices in that same hour jesus rejoiced in the holy spirit and he said this so Jesus now is going to show us what to celebrate because he's about to celebrate with his disciples. Some of us think that Jesus is mostly grumpy in the Gospels. He's not here. He's celebrating. Look what he celebrates. It's amazing. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And <laughs> is this not an insult? No, seriously. He is thankful. He's thanking God that God did not reveal this stuff to wise people. And, and the disciples are standing there going, but he revealed it to us. Right. <laughs> right. I am thankful, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the, the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus rejoices, if I can say it this way, in their incompetence. He rejoices in their inability. He rejoices in their not bringing anything to the table. He is rejoicing in this way because that way when stuff happens, when God's power is displayed, when there is a work of the ministry of the Spirit and gospel power, we know that God did it. That Jesus was the one at work. He is the one doing the work. It brings Jesus great joy to do his most powerful works through the most insignificant. This is critically important. This bothers those of us who want to be significant. We want to be on team Jesus because Jesus can't do without us. However... This brings great comfort to those of us who feel like we don't have anything to offer. Because Jesus says, listen, nobody does. And you're in the right frame of mind to see the powerful work of God because God is the one doing his work through his people. 
The rejoicing is not merely in the work of power. God does works of power all the time. He calls that Monday. Notice the sun is still in orbit around the, uh, or the, the earth is still in orbit around the sun. Have you noticed that? Thank you, Lord. It's not an accident. He's that powerful. We get excited because the power of God is done in and through us, not because we're special, not because we're awesome, but because God is that kind and that gracious, that he could use our fumbling words, our messed up testimony, our fits and starts in spiritual life, and still do something in and through us. That's just a miracle of God's grace, and it brings great glory to Jesus, and not merely glory, it brings him joy to work through people who don't have anything to offer. It brings him joy. Notice he's not annoyed with the disciples. I thank you, Father in heaven. You've revealed to people like this. Verses 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, Blessed are eyes to see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All the ways that God has made himself known, the most profound way that God has made himself known is Jesus came as a man to die for sinners. And these disciples have the joy of seeing his plan come to culmination. And Jesus is saying, King David, the prophet Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, even Jonah, desired to see this day. They're not seeing it. You are seeing it. To know Jesus and to know him according to the mission that he is on. To know Jesus in a way that would make King David jealous is to be on mission with Jesus doing the work that he's been doing all along. We read the Bible, yes. We pray, yes. We're generous, yes. David did all of those things. But what, Jesus, what David couldn't do is go out and proclaim the risen Christ. And that's fundamentally different. That's a privilege we have that those of the Old Testament never have. Job well done. Know what the job is. What's the job? Did you figure it out yet? Kingdom of God is near. Tell people. Know what to celebrate. What do we celebrate? Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay, last passage we're going to look at, and then we'll close. First Peter. First Peter, let's see, chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, I'm going to read 10, 11, and 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Did you know the Old Testament prophets wanted to know what we know? They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that you have now been announced, or should say, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What do we celebrate that God has done? There's, there's lots of things we might celebrate God has done in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our world. What the angels long to look into, what the angels press their faces against the glass of the, the church building to examine, I might say, is that Jesus would save sinners. They, they long to look into this, that the Holy Spirit would, would come from heaven to convince sinners they need salvation. What do we celebrate that God has done? Is salvation of our own hearts and salvation in the lives of those around us what we celebrate most in terms of what God has done for us? For the angels, it is. That's the biggest celebration. I think there's a, a place for you and I to look into our hearts when we think through the blessings God has given us and the things we celebrate most probably over the course of our lives as Christians. If you've been a, a Christian for a while, the celebration that our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life has slowly worked its way down 
further and further on the list. In fact, now it gets to a point where we don't want to admit we needed it. Celebrate Jesus, save sinners like us. In fact, the degree to which we celebrate Jesus would save sinners like us might have something to do with our motivation to share it with others. A couple more things I might mention, if you don't mind. If you do, you know the drill. I'm going to do it anyway. What's your thing with Jesus? How many you think of it? You're probably good at something with Jesus. Some people are really studious. They read a lot. They know lots of stuff. Able to retain a lot of good information. Read the Bible and remember it. Read books about the Bible and remember it. Maybe you're very studious. Some people are very prayerful. I don't know if it's natural or, or what, but some people, it just seems like they're always praying. Some people are well-behaved. Do you know these people? Kind of annoying, I know. But some people, <laughs> some people just are really good at being good. They just, when bad, tempting stuff shows up, like, no, no thanks, I'm good. How do, you, how do you say no to that? I don't understand. Some people are really good at being well-behaved. Some people are really disciplined. They, they form habits in their life, and man, they're just going to punch that out. Boom, boom, boom. They're it's really good at that kind of stuff. All of these things are, I, I might suggest, are really important ways of bringing glory to Jesus in our lives. I think these are important things we might think about and how we bring glory to Jesus in our lives. But do you want to know Jesus more? You have to be on his mission. You have to be on his mission. Listen, I, I, I don't mean to pick on guys, but you know this is true. You can sit to, and talk to a guy all day long, but then go build a fence with a guy or a deck or go hunting. Isn't it fundamentally change? I'm sorry, I wish I had one for women, but I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a woman. But there's something fundamentally different from having a conversation to doing something. And what Jesus is saying is, I want that with you. I want you to join me on a thing, and that thing is this, telling people the kingdom is near. And if you are like many Christians, you do all the things, but there's still a bit of sort of holy dissatisfaction in your life. You don't know why it's not really getting traction. It might be for some of us, it's because we long since walked away from the mission. Tell people the kingdom of God is near. If you want to know Jesus, one of the fundamental ways we know Jesus is we do what he called us to do, tell people he has come to save sinners. Okay, last thing on that, and then we're going to close. I'm serious, I promise. I know, it's, I know it's warm in here. We set the thermostat to, to hot. We didn't. The world is thermostat is set to hot today. Um, I've already said this, but I'm going to say it maybe more emphatically. We, we actually have to tell people the kingdom of God is near as, as witnesses. Let, let me say it this way. We ought to be kind. Okay, if you want to buy coffee for the guy in the car behind you, fine. Knock yourself out. Uh, you want to leave a big tip as a Christian witness, please do that. If you don't want to leave a tip, tell them you're Mormon. That's <laughs> probably, that's probably not going to make it to the radio. That's probably going to get edited out. Uh, you want to help out your neighbor to show them you're generous and you, you're good. If you want to work hard at work as a way of testimony to your boss, you know, you should do that. You want to be ethical as a way of showing that Jesus calls you to have integrity. You know, keep doing those things. Here's the thing. At some point, you have to tell non-believers they need to get forgiven. This is what we say to little kids. You know what we say to them? So I think this will stick with it. You're going to have to use your words. You're going to, at some point, you have to tell somebody, you're a sinner. You need forgiveness. Jesus is the only way. Well, what if they reject me? Let, me? let me give you some relief on that. They totally will. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. Your job is not to convince them. Your job is to use your words. Then you've done your job. In fact, I would probably suggest you're not afraid of them rejecting you. What are you afraid of? What if they say they need that? What am I going to do then? I don't want my neighbor to come to church with me. <laughs> Jesus wants to save them from their sin. 
Trust Jesus. He died for you. He rose again. What if they don't believe me? Give them evidence. What's the evidence you give them? Jesus forgave me. You say, well, but my neighbor, my mom, my dad, my kid, my in-laws, they know what I'm like. Good. They know how much you need forgiveness. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not telling them Jesus saves perfect people. Your testimony is Jesus saves sinners. And you are one. Tell them how Jesus forgave you from your sin. One of the best evidences you can give your non-believing friends that Jesus saves sinners is to tell them the sin you've been forgiven of. Because Jesus is raised from the dead. We don't carry shame on it anymore, do we? I can tell people where I blew it. Because Jesus forgave me. You want a piece of that action? If you do, trust Jesus. God, we thank you for how plain spoken you are in your word. You've called us to do a job, and by the power of the Spirit, you've called us to do it well. God, would you move in our hearts in this moment by your Spirit to experience that conviction that would move us to repentance, that we've been off the job, that we've wanted to share the gospel in every way possible other than sharing the gospel. God, would you show us in each of our lives those people and places where you just want us to tell them the kingdom of God is near, Jesus saves sinners. God, would you give us the heart of the Spirit to know what to celebrate? We don't have to celebrate instigating a new revival or any of those sorts of things. Our job is to celebrate that you would save someone like us. That you would put our names in the book of life, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for the power you've given us to know you and endure to the end. God, we admit that we have not been on your mission as individuals or as a body of believers to the extent that you would call us to do so. God, would you move in our hearts as individuals to know where we need to get back to work by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.